This episode is brought to you by the Elite Academy, formerly known as hrvcourse.com. The Elite Academy now offers in-depth online courses on multiple subjects. So if you're enjoying the content of this podcast, but you're looking for a more structured and logical progression, looking at the science and application of these subjects, check out the Elite Academy at EliteHRV.com academy. Welcome to the Elite HRV podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. Welcome back to the Elite HRV podcast. This is your host, Jason Moore, and I'm very excited to have Dr. Amy Baxter joining us today. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jason. I'm thrilled to be here. Awesome. Me too. I'm, I'm really excited because uh, this is a topic we haven't covered much, and that's the, the topic of pain. And going in uh, on that is something that affects everybody listening, I'm sure, at some point or another. And uh, Amy, you and uh, my colleague Vivek got connected at the Integrative Health Symposium a couple months ago, right? Yes, we did. Okay, and and Vivek uh, spoke very highly of you. Uh, he went on to actually order uh, one of the products that you've created uh, to to deal with some patellar tendonitis, I believe, is what he was dealing with, and um, he spoke incredibly highly of the f- effectiveness of it. And uh, after we connected and, and just kind of uh, realizing how deep you and your team go into the research on these things, I thought, okay, let's, let's get you on the show. We need to share some of this with the audience. So we're, we're all kind of excited to hear about this, even <laughs> though p- pain can be kind of a painful subject sometimes. I, I know. It's so much fun to meet science nerds, you know, other people that are interested and who don't look at me strangely when I say, yeah, I'm really excited about pain. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's, so, uh, it's going to be fun. Yeah, it'll, it'll be as fun as pain can be, right? So, um, but let's just frame this a little bit here. So, um, when we're when we're talking pain, there are many different types of pain. I can think of injuries that I've had. I can think of um, stomach viruses that I've had. I can think of uh, psychological pain that I've had. Uh, you know, what what are we? Let's kind of uh, put some swim lanes around this. What are we talking about today when it comes with pain? Sure. So. I think, first of all, the most important concept of pain is that it is not just the physiologic signal. Pain is this complicated interplay of the physical pain transmission and the focus that you have on the pain itself, what it means, and then the fear. And so there's a lot of this pain-fear focus that leads to how you deal with and overcome pain. So one of the interesting things about pain is that when you have persistent pain, the brain, it's like an alarm system. So the brain looks at nociceptors or this you know, bad danger feelings. And so all of that is transmitted on A-delta nerves. And that's the sharp pain. It's burning. It's injury. It's inflammation. It's swelling. It's all of those things. They're all transmitted on the same nerve. When the brain experiences this pain for long enough, 
it starts putting in extra alarms, extra receptors. It's kind of like if you had a window in your basement that kept getting broken into, you keep adding alarms and alarms and alarms. And when the punk neighborhood kid who's been sneaking in uh, goes away to college, no one's breaking into that window anymore, but the alarms are still there. So when you have chronic pain, the brain has these chronic alarms set up and it can take a while to downregulate those to uninstall the inappropriate amount of pain. So the part of pain that I'm particularly interested in is how we can change that sharp signal that's on the A delta from injury, from overuse, from, from procedures and medicine, how we can modify that before it gets to the brain, and then how we can use the brain to decrease the focus on pain and to help uninstall some of those unnecessary alarms when chronic pain has gone on too long. Well, that was uh, much better than I could have even uh, dreamed of an answer for that question because um, we've already got so much to unpack here and that's, ex- that's exciting. So um, I love the distinction between acute and chronic pain there. Um, that's some, those are terms that the audience and listeners will be familiar with when we talk about other areas of health and fitness and performance. Um, and so it's really interesting to also kind of, uh, immediately layer on the fact that acute pain has con- contributions to your body's response to the pain over time or that chronic pain, right? Um, Fantastic. Losing a pain, you know. Um, if you're a dancer or an elite athlete, then you expect that you're going to get injured, and you just make a plan to train through the pain. You you figure out whether or not it's dangerous to keep exercising or to keep working on it. And once it's no longer going to make it worse, then you just are you're sort of accustomed to sucking it up because your body is what your tool is for your job. And that's a huge difference for a lot of people who are looking at pain as an indicator of um, their lives being over. You know, if I, you know, if I can't walk normally, if I can't play tennis, then I can't hang out with my friends. It's called catastrophizing, but it's sort of leading to this spiral of of depression because people's identities get tied up in the pain, as opposed to athletes who expect pain and so they're not as afraid of it. So it's much more a practical matter of what do I need to do to get this over with faster? Right. Although I do imagine too, you know, to just to round out that psychological side that pain can be somewhat of a distraction if it was there all the time during a competition, for example. Um, and af- it could be that an athlete gets in their head that maybe that injury or that pain is slowing them down or something or, um, uh, the possibility of re-injury and time off from the season, things like that. So definitely uh, interesting to tie the psychological side of it uh, in. And how how did you get into all of this? I mean, this you've clearly taken a, a very uh, deep dive into the pain swimming pool here. Um, <laughs> what led you to do all of this? I was a pediatric emergency doctor by training, and I was interested in just areas of suffering. So I I did uh, my first big project and grant was developing a nausea scale for children called the Baxter Animated Retching Faces Scale. It's all about the acronym. You want to get funded, 
you got to have a good accent. <laughs> so, so barf scale is now used in at least eight countries and translated into lots of different languages. And it helps gauge how effective um, chemotherapy is while making sure it doesn't cause the kids to get too sick. So it's hard to research cancer drugs and not make sure that they're not so nauseous that they can't keep eating. So, um, Mm. so that kind of area of suffering started. And then I was very interested in topical anesthetics and pain management for spinal taps and sewing up sutures and, and uh, starting IVs and things. And then when my son had a really bad needle pain experience with his four year vaccinations, which we now know is what leads to needle phobia. But at the time, I just felt like I'm a pediatrician and I can't deal with his pain quickly. I can't trust the medical system to care about needle pain. So what can I make for parents so that they can have some control over this? And I knew about something called gait control. And this is, we're going to talk about this a lot because the sharp pain, this A delta pain, it is transmitted on very small nerves to the substantia gelatinosa in the dorsal column of the spinal cord. So basically the back of the spine does sensory stuff and the sharp pain nerves go in, but then about 95% of the neurons in the spine are involved in modifying and inhibiting and enhancing and changing that signal and then sending one kind of summary signal up to the brain. So the A-delta nerves are heavily modified by motion nerves. So I knew that if you bumped your elbow and you rub it, the pain goes away because you're feeling vibration. I knew that if you burn your finger, you stick it under cold water, and the pain goes away because you're stimulating the sensation of motion and the cold. So it turns out that the cold nerves, which are C fibers, and the A beta nerves, which are all of the different four motion receptors, they go along with the pain and they rush through the gate and block pain out if they're really strong. So all of this is to say, when my son had his bad experience, I thought, you know, there's got to be a way to, to make a fake running water sensation and put it between the brain and the pain and block out the needle pain with this sort of faux water thing. Um, I tried making stuff with those little uh, foldy animal balloons and water and squishing and it totally didn't work. (laughs) So I was going to give up. But one night I was driving home from the hospital after an emergency shift. So it was actually early in the morning and my hands were on my steering wheel, which was vibrating because the, the tires were unbalanced And when I reached for the door of the house, I completely couldn't feel my hand. It was numb because of the vibration. So that was when I realized, you know, you don't need to have running water to make this A beta nerve stimulated to block out the pain. You get numb with vibration. So putting vibration and ice together, it turns out for several reasons, is a lot more effective at decreasing pain. And that was in 2004. So I created a device that blocks needle pain. It's called Buzzy. Um, There've been 30 randomized controlled trials on it. And people started using it to not take opioids after surgery, particularly one of my colleagues who'd been in opioid recovery. So about three years ago was when I decided that it was um, a much bigger deal to address general pain and to try to reduce opioid use. And I gave up practicing to focus full time on doing that. 
Yeah. So that's my checkered, that's my checkered and tortuous path. Wow. Yeah, no, it's great. It's, you know, and you brought up a couple of other things too, uh, or a few different tools that people might think of having in their toolkit when dealing with pain. Obviously there's just rest, there's, um, sleep. Uh, you mentioned drugs and pharmaceuticals, opioids, um, and then some other interesting things that people may have kind of intuited, intuitively understood, but not necessarily thought of before, such as that cooling and that vibration. And, you know, it's, I, I, I'm not a pain expert by any means, but definitely when I stub my toe or anything like that, I do tend to shake my foot or try to walk it off and things like that. Try to stay moving seems to help. Those are the kind of intuitions that I was kind of mentioning right there. But then translating that to actual tools that you could possibly use um, that simulate that motion. And then also the temperature changes when someone burns their finger and runs it under cool water. That's something that probably most everyone has done. Um, well, let me, let me make you a pain expert. Okay. Cause, um, I, one of the things about being an emergency doctor, particularly an emergency pediatrician is we spend a lot of time learning how to interpret complicated science so that parents can understand. So I've been trying really hard to interpret pain physiology into lay terms. And so let me, let me try it out on you and tell me, uh, tell me how it works. I'm, I'm in. So <laughs> here you go. You ready? Buckle up. Okay. So we've already talked about the sharp pain nerve, which is the A delta nerve. And it transmits everything from a stub toe to surgery, to uh, a bee sting, to somebody kicking you. Um, all of that pain goes along with the motion nerves, the A-beta nerves. Now, here's the part. There are four different A-beta nerves, and these are all the motor nerves. So you've got light touch, which is Messner corpuscles. You've got deep touch and vibration, which is Pacinian corpuscles. You've got the stretching in the muscles themselves. Those are Raffini corpuscles and 1A afferents. Don't worry about that. Um, but then there's also something called a Merkel disc, which is basically really long, deep pressure. So any of these four receptors is going to go along with that A delta. And if you stimulate it strongly enough, then that strong motor sensation is the only thing that gets transmitted to the brain. So when you're thinking about trying to decrease pain, uh, foam rollers. So you're doing a couple things. The foam rollers are triggering those Merkel discs, the really deep pressure, and probably the Pacinian ones as well. So when you roll it and move it, you may also be pulling in some of the Raffini corpuscles. So even though it hurts at the time that you may be rolling, you're also setting up all of those signals to block out pain afterwards. The other thing is, so TENS units, for example. So TENS units are trying to trigger motion with uh, a little bit of electricity. So at low intensities, they get the light touch Messner ones. Uh, Tiger Balm does this, Icy Hot, Menthol, any of those that are causing tingling sensations, those are using those Messner corpuscles to block out pain. When you do really intense electrical stimulation, you're twitching a, a muscle and causing motion. And so then you're triggering all those other motion nerves. So the fun thing that has come out in the last seven years with the research is that turns out that vibration 
in about 180 to 200 hertz is the best way to stimulate all four of those receptors mm. because mm. vibration or you know, it's gotten a bad rap because of the 60s and good vibes and because everybody thinks about those uh, images from the 50s with women jiggling themselves. <laughs> you know, Vibration, you weight loss. <laughs> not going to lie, there's, there's some overlay of, uh, <laughs> of that kind of thing too. But um, if it makes it easier to call it oscillatory mechanical strain, whatever makes it easy to understand, that's really how the body is designed to grow and to risk to to modify itself its motion so it's a lot more effective to decrease pain with high frequency vibration and there are a lot of other ancillary benefits that vibration gives from a sports perspective i would imagine things like um uh, stimulating the lymphatic system potentially and uh, blood flow in general, uh, things like that is, is some right, are some right. of those. Well, the, the blood, flow, blood flow is fun because um, it, it turns out that it matters a lot what amplitude you're talking about. So if you have um, a jackhammer, which is really high amplitude, or one of those Theragun things, those are such intense stimuli that they're actually going to shut down blood flow and in extremities they can damage nerves. So there's a, there's actually a chart that shows how much time um, it's additive. So how much time you can use a jackhammer and not have any permanent damage and what your likelihood is of permanent damage, the longer you use a jackhammer that, that high amplitude shuts down blood flow. But low amplitude, really high frequency increases blood flow. So if you, um, for example, our buzzy device, if you put the buzzy device on the back of the hand, you can actually watch the blood vessels get bigger. And this is probably because it's like when a nurse is patting the hand to make the blood vessels pop up, you're mimicking a really high heart rate, which releases endogenous nitric oxide. Um, the, the blood vessels themselves are designed to respond to a high heart rate by getting bigger and taking more blood to the muscles where they're needed. So when you put very light, very high frequency vibration on, the blood vessels think that you're in a race and so it'll increase blood flow. So that's, that's a cool thing. Um, one of the, the other interesting parts about vibration and recovery is that Emietz et al. looked at vibration compared to massage and stretching in decreasing delayed onset muscle soreness. So I'm particularly interested in the tendinopathies, the overuse injuries, the you know, patellar tendinitis, that kind of stuff. Um, but even when it's just an athlete who's getting ready to work out, the mechanism is if you've got any injury at all, the muscle fibers release lactic acid to try to immobilize them to give the fibers a chance to heal. If you work out again without stretching or making it so those myocytes can slide on each other smoothly without ripping, then you get more lactic acid and more cytokines and more, more pain. So Emietz looked at a 50 hertz vibration compared to massage and stretching and found that five minutes of vibration before working out was as effective to separate those fibers and reduce the delayed onset muscle soreness. Um, five minutes of vibration was as effective as 15 minutes of massage and 30 minutes of stretching. Wow. 
now you're putting pictures in my head of (laughs) it's cool it makes sense but it's still cool that somebody you know put it into a paper no it's it's huge and you know i think um there's there's so many uh, anecdotes out there that it's really nice when you, you can put some kind of structured evidence behind things. Um, and at the same time, uh, taking the image of those, like you said, from the fifties uh, weight loss jiggle machines. And then now you've got me uh, uh, with the image of those same things, but in a CrossFit gym with a bunch of really lean and high intensity athletes all standing there before their intense workout. Um, <laughs> well, you know, the whole body vibration plates. There's a lot of good research with whole body vibration. The, the whole body plates, the maximum frequency they can get up to is about 20 hertz. So a hertz is um, how many uh, shakes per second. Mm-hmm. So, um, and most of them are slower than that. So you're not getting the, the same mechanism that causes the increased blood flow on a whole body uh, vibration plate. But what happens is that the whole body vibration causes um, greater what do you call it? Recruitment of, of muscles and nerves. And so you're getting a more comprehensive workout. And because you get more um, stimuli to all of the different areas, because you're not just doing like on a, a bench press or something where you're just moving one set of muscles, when you're balancing on a whole body vibration plate, there's studies that show that arthritis gets better faster, that people recover faster from surgery. And the thought is that you're increasing blood flow because you're causing multiple muscle masses and you're engaging different groups simultaneously instead of normally repetitive movements are just going to get one set of muscles. But in addition, the vibration causes some stretching and motion around the joint capsules themselves. So that allows for some growth. Um, One of the things that I I think that people get caught up on is like, oh, well, you know, ultrasound works, but I don't know about pulsed electromagnetic fields or um, massage works, but high frequency vibration. I'm not sure how that works. The, The thing about the body is that we are designed to get bigger and grow in response to manageable strain, whether it comes from um, an, a pulsed electromagnetic field or a, Uh, an ultrasound or walking or doing reps. Um, All of those strains are transmitted by the muscles and tendons and ligaments and stress passes through all of it. And so it stimulates not only specific blood flow, but um, vibration, for example, stimulates growth hormone and osteoclast activity and osteoblast activity. So it's remodeling bones in fact, one of the earliest clinical uses of vibration was a guy in 1956 who found that when people were in a whole body cast, you know, their muscles atrophy and their bones get weak. So he put them on a vibrating bed, kind of like Vegas, but it probably costs more than a quarter of use. And, <laughs> um, and they recovered faster. So now we know that like walking, walking is a 15 to 30 hertz activity. Every every motion and every movement that you do has some intrinsic 
vibration frequency that's associated with it. And that gets transmitted from muscle to tendon to ligament to bone to cell and stimulates growth. Now, that's an interesting part of the equation that kind of came to mind. Uh, I was actually on a panel a couple of years back at a conference um, for biohacking, and this con- this topic came up um, mostly with regard to whole body vibration, and um, and then the topic of just general movement came up, and obviously before there was technology to provide vibrations for us um, as a species, we were probably moving around quite a bit more than we do today on average, and a lot of that would have been really low-intensity movement, just walking or um, kind of piddling around. And um, that's where a lot of the uh, movement and vibration might have come from. And and what you're highlighting here is kind of the range of hertz that that spectrum lies in, where if you're sprinting, for example, you're probably experiencing quite a bit of vibration, but obviously that's not a sustainable activity. And ultimately that's going to, and when I say sustainable, I mean in the moment, uh, not that you can't sprint every now and then. And um, (laughs) um, I'm trying to do more for the high intensity workouts just because they're more efficient and faster, but turns out they're harder. Right. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) High intensity. Um, And so, yeah, it's interesting to see the different tools in the toolkit there and that how whole body vibration provides a different uh, range of vibrations than kind of targeted uh, tools that we might be able to apply either locally. Uh, What are some of the other, I know that you have multiple products or at least you have multiple things in the pipeline. What are some of the frequencies that you like to apply your products at and, and where on the body and to what scale? That's such a good question. So the one important thing is it's frequency and amplitude. And the research in vibration has exploded in the last 10 years. But when they were first starting, many of the articles didn't include what amplitude it was. And it turns out it makes a huge difference. I've already explained about the difference it makes for blood flow, but the, the, how, how intense the vibration is, is a really big part. That jackhammer. The frequency part um, is particularly important for pain. And that's because the Pacini corpuscles that are around the joints and the tendons, those are concentrated there and they're most sensitive in the 180 to 200 range. So for example, um, there's an article in Practical Pain Management that looked at Willow Curve, and which works, and... Um, Quell, which doesn't, and Vibracool, which does. And they found that particularly for patients who had uh, encephalopathies, I'm not a PT, but basically tendonitis. So elbow tendonitis and knee tendonitis, that those responded really well to focal high-frequency vibration. So Vibracool is the device that we have, and it has the high-frequency It also has an ice component because, well, I'm going to talk about ice later, but to answer your question about the frequencies. um, So much of the stuff going on now is being done in Italy. And Benedetti is one of my favorite researchers. They looked at um, quadricep hypotrophy after osteoarthritis and found that using 150 hertz made the quadricep get bigger and made it stronger, whereas electrostem, like a TENS unit, didn't. And I think that, again, this underscores that actual motion makes 
the body respond better because we are designed to respond to motion. It's a motion nerve. So that was 150 hertz. Um, the delayed onset muscle soreness, they used the lower frequency of 50 hertz. And there's a bunch of really interesting low back pain work that's been done with um, 100 hertz and, 100, and 200. And so we're about to take on a trial to look at low back pain relief and see what happens if we alternate between 100 and 150. Oh, sorry, 100 and, uh, and 180. It's hard to get the motors to be strong and fast enough. So a lot of the early research, they just bought something at Brookstone or Sharper Image and plopped it on and said, oh, vibration works or, oh, it doesn't. We're getting a lot more sophisticated now. One of the other cool areas that I'm excited about is post-surgical because the combination of increased blood flow and um, stimulation and actual just um, mechanical growth factors that get stimulated by vibration, we're hopeful that people will recover faster after a, an ACL. We just got finished with an ACL pilot. And first of all, only four out of 14 people were still taking opioids at their first follow-up visit. So that means that they got better fast enough to be off opioids within three days, which is the goal to reduce the risk of addiction. Um, the second thing was that the pain was reduced so much that one young woman who was using Vibracool and this one, she had had uh, her other ACL had been repaired about six months before, and she used Percocet for that. For this one with the Vibracool, she didn't even get her Percocet prescription filled, so it made that much of a difference. And trials that are on the same person control for all a bunch of different variables. So that's one that's really excited that we're hoping we can replicate um, because I think that the the potential for athletes to be able to use this after surgery to not run the risk of addiction and to be able to get back to motion faster. That's one of the, the huge new areas to, to research. So many huge areas of application come to mind with these conversations. You know, it's, you, you brought up opioids again and, um, the, uh, there's obviously, a lot of uh, tension around that subject these days, um, a lot of addiction. And I think that kind of relates back to uh, a couple things. One being the psychological side of the equation where you talked about at the beginning of this conversation, the fear that gets associated with pain and some of the chronic patterns that we create as we experience acute pain over time. And another thing too that comes to mind is that um, there uh, it's in, in the medical and pharma interventions, there often seems to be a potential side effect of, uh, for example, um, anti-inflammatory drugs or uh, things like that, because it may reduce pain in the moment, but at the same time, the inflammation's there for a reason, and it's performing a task in the body, uh, which is healing you or fixing the problem, so to speak, or protecting you from uh, making the problem worse. And so, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. I think you've kind of already alluded to it, but, um, when we use some of these other tools like vibration and temperature, which we're going to dig into a little more in a bit, um, how does that affect the efficacy of the healing that goes on in the body? Um, and then also the psychological side of the equation, is it different? 
wow. So these, these are huge areas of controversy. Um, I will tell you that from an opioid standpoint, one of the biggest misconceptions is that opioids are the good stuff and that they work the best for pain. The number one source of fast-acting opioids in circulation are dentists giving them to patients for wisdom tooth removal. So we're talking young adults. And in a meta-analysis looking at a whole bunch of different wisdom tooth removal pain relief, turns out ibuprofen reduces pain four out of 10 uh, you know, on a 10-point scale. Um, codeine and Lortab only reduce at 2.5 on average, and placebo reduces at one. So ibuprofen is actually a whole lot better for inflammatory pain. Um, likewise, in emergency studies with fractures, ibuprofen and Tylenol with codeine and Lortab in multiple different studies are equivalent for pain relief in kids with fractures, but there's many more side effects with the Lortab and codeine. So we have been sold this bill of goods by Big Pharma, um, quite literally, that that opioids are a good answer for chronic, for acute pain. They're not. Um, they're good for during surgery and they're good in the hospital, but for home pain management, they actually don't have good research compared to things like ibuprofen. So now let's talk about this concept of you need to have inflammation to heal. Um, turns out that one of the biggest things the body needs to learn how to do is to control inflammation. Part of the problem with aggressive Tylenol and Motrin and ibuprofen use in children is that when they're sick, their body doesn't learn how to decrease inflammation. And this is what's thought to contribute to so many allergies now, is that you're supposed to learn how to shut down your inflammation as a kid. And if you control it artificially with ibuprofen and Tylenol, your body doesn't ever learn how to stop that inflammatory cascade when it's not useful. The key part of that sentence is that there are times when the inflammatory cascade is not useful. Mm. And it for, for a long time in orthopedics, there was this dogma that if you give people ibuprofen, the bones won't heal as fast. Uh, that's been completely disproven. The, the inflammation that causes pain is unnecessary for healing. Once you have alerted the body, once you've alerted the brain that you've got something dangerous going on, it's not a useful signal anymore. So the, there's a whole lot of, um, of controversy about ICE. Looking at the meta-analyses and the Cochrane reviews of whether ICE helps decrease pain, many of them use different sources of ICE, which really make it hard to interpret. So if you take a bag of peas, for example, that are frozen, the surface area of each pea that is delivering cold is only touching the body in one point because it's a sphere. And so you're only delivering cold in a whole bunch of individual little points and it's not confluent. So the vast majority of the area of your skin is getting cool, but it's not getting ice. It turns out that to stop the cellular mechanisms for um, the cause of inflammation, like you know, now when we're doing whole body cryotherapy or, or we're cooling off brains to reduce the damage after a heart attack, when the brain doesn't have any blood flow, we're icing people's brains. You've got to get it down to between about 25 and 30 degrees to stop the cascade of inflammatory 
uh, damaging cytokines and and lactic acid and IL-1 and all the things that are are causing problems. Wow. So for the muscles, not saying you need to totally freeze the brain, it's saying that the, the temperature that you're delivering has to be cold enough to really slow it down and you have to deliver that ice in a confluent manner. So the studies that show efficacy with ice are the ones that do it with a compression unit and do it circumferentially. So that when we were making Vibracool, in order to transmit the vibration so you get cold and vibration at the same time, we had to play around to make the ice packs very thin so they'll only stay frozen about 20 minutes so you don't get too much cold, but that it's confluent, it's, it's flat. So it gets all of the surface area of the impacted tissue so that you do slow down those biomarkers. So again, I know that there's, there's opinions on both sides, but my read of the literature, um, I'm an enormous fan of ibuprofen. Certainly you've got gastric problems and stomach issues and you don't wanna use it all the time, but it is good at decreasing inflammation. And we know the mechanism of pain relief for ibuprofen, whereas we don't for Tylenol. Um, and the when you have an injury, you are creating plenty of inflammation. The body's goal at that point is to dampen that inflammatory response. And so adding ibuprofen or ice or both to decrease that inflammation is actually a good thing to do for almost everything. If you've got fail, disunion or failure of bones to knit back together, there is some support for chronic ibuprofen making that bone healing worse. But there's also lots of support now for vibration making bones grow better faster together. So we haven't really redone those studies in the light of the fact that we've got mechanical devices that can perhaps overcome any any of the issues that ibuprofen might cause. And that's, Ooh, you got me started. Great. That's the goal, right? Um, I just uh, light the fire underneath my guests and let them go for it. And uh, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, I, I think you highlighted so many great things there. You're, on the one hand, you mentioned um, uh, if we take too many intervention steps in our childhood when we're developing these natural systems, when our nervous system is developing and um, like our vagal nerve reflex uh, to inflammation, for example, that if we intervene too much in that process in early childhood, that we might actually uh, reduce our body's adaptation and ability to uh, clear those things on its own and deal with that on its own, which can then translate to maybe more dependence as an adult or um, just other issues that are unforeseen. And then on, on the same or on the opposite end of the spectrum that um, the, these tools have a, an appropriate use case. And, you know, one of the things I just kind of like to bring uh, it back to a average everyday life is that if you can't sleep because of pain, sleep being one of the number one periods of recovery that you can ever experience, um, then almost anything you can do to reduce that pain enough to be able to sleep is going to uh, likely cause positive outcomes in many scenarios. And again, I'm not saying that's true for every specific case, but um, that's just- Actually, you can, you can go there. It, <laughs> it is. Um, I think that that you've moved into a topic which is, is also something I'm really passionate about, which is that the- the body's response to pain um, is sleep is critical and 
and so there are so many different approaches to pain um, other than any kind of pill. If anything, whether it is gabapentin or opioids or a massage or mindfulness, almost all of these interventions reduce pain about 30%. There is no single silver bullet. So for chronic pain, it's critical to make a pain plan and have multiple things. And the the linchpin of a pain plan has to be sleep because if you are irritable, you are more afraid, which increases pain, and you're less able to cope, which increases pain. And so, so melatonin, um, prescription sleep aids, Benadryl, anything that gets you know, taking a warm bath, whatever it is, but experimenting to get sleep, I think is actually probably the most um, critical and underrated thing for chronic pain. The other thing is uh, there are a whole lot of different therapies, both supplements and physical solutions that doctors don't learn about. Our superpower is pharmaceuticals. We spend a lot of time understanding biochemistry and pharmacology and the side effects of pharmacology. So you're up on what you're up on. And doctors don't read the literature as much on supplements. Magnesium is a fabulous supplement for about four different reasons. It is a neuro-anti-inflammatory. It is a smooth muscle relaxer. It is a generalized anti-inflammatory. And if you happen to actually be on opioids, it's something called an NMDA blocker. So it, it stops the ramp up that makes you need to have more and more opioids to get the effect. So it, it blocks that down. The other thing is people with chronic pain, uh, almost all of them are burning through their magnesium. So people with uh, chronic pain need more. And about 50% of people in one study that was looking at other stuff, they found that 50% of people are low in magnesium just across the board. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was more people that were low who had chronic inflammatory or chronic pain conditions. So one of the first things to reduce chronic pain, uh, that 30% is start taking 250 to 500 milligrams of magnesium a day. Um, and then sleep is critical. And of course, turmeric and a lot of other, there's for migraines, butter burr is good. Um, but the stretching to stimulate those refining corpuscles, having yoga, massage, Pilates, all of those things that, that stretch the muscles, those are really effective for pain. I mean, physical problems need physical solutions. So reorienting the way the body is, is, um, is balanced. I mean, I, many people who have plantar fasciitis have a limb length discrepancy and it may only be a half a centimeter. It's tiny, but it's enough to cause extra strain on the plantar tendons that give you pain. So identifying any subtle limb length discrepancy and then getting an orthotic. There's a lot of different physical solutions that are extremely effective for pain, but I can tell you physicians do not, um, get taught that, you know, when we're, when we're post-call, it's Pfizer who brings us lasagna for lunch. It's not the yoga association of America. Right. (laughs) Well, that's, that, that makes so much sense. And one of the other tools that we've talked about and haven't dug in a little bit further on is the temperature side of the equation. Um, Is temperature, relevant only because it's also stimulating um, motion in the body and at various levels, or is there actually something to the actual temperature side of the equation as well? 
Um, it depends on what you mean by temperature. There's from a pain standpoint, if we go back to talking about cold, um, there is there is something called descending noxious inhibitory control. And so if you get a really intense cold, like an ice pack, it causes the thalamus to get the signal of cold, say, okay, this is unpleasant, but it's not dangerous. So I'm going to dampen down this painful stimulus. And the nice thing is that it dampens down pain everywhere. So if you have one hand in a bucket of ice water, after about 30 seconds, when it starts to get uncomfortably cold, you can tolerate more pain any place else on your body. And it's not because of bandwidth, although there are different mechanisms to use that. It's because of this, this feedback loop, this DNIC. So we've discovered with our VibraCool devices that the ice is actually 60% of the numbing. The vibration does good stuff to muscles and it does good stuff to repair and makes it last longer, but the vibration is only about 40% of the pain relief. It is the, the synergy between the ice and vibration that um, that's why it works better for adults is kids are not born with this feedback loop. They get it over time. That's why they get really bothered by mosquito bites or don't like bitter tastes. They haven't learned how to, to modify intense stimuli. Um, as far as temperature, so if you're talking about sleeping and and having the body be colder at night, or is that kind of where you're going, or, the, or just the change, the delta between the hot temperature and cold? All of the above, actually. This was great. I, I actually was first talking about some of the kind of acute application of temperature from a cooling perspective locally. Um, uh, as, as it relates to pain mitigation, but just globally too, there's a lot of interested in temperature, um, hot, cold contrast therapy, cold showers, cold bathing, um, cool rooms at night, warm uh, during the day, that type of stuff. So happy to uh, hear anything about that, but I think you hit the the nail on what I was getting at originally. <laughs> yeah. I, I know much more now about focal muscle behavior. I don't know, um, and pain, but I don't know as much about the, that except for what I've read and, you know, Reader's Digest like anybody else, but, um, sure, sure. No, no, that's great. You, you hit it right on the head. What I was looking for. One of the things though, is, um, the, the concept of alternating cold and heat, the whole point, the, the, the worst thing about ice is that it does decrease blood flow. It does vasoconstrict. So that's where having a high frequency, low amplitude vibration concurrently is important because then you vasodilate, you increase the blood flow with the vibration. So you don't need to alternate back and forth because the problem that alternating is solving is you don't want to stop blood flow to the tissues. But if you add vibration to the cold, then you've increased your blood flow and you take care of that. So you don't need to pulse the down regulation of production of cytokines. I have not seen really strong research on the cold, hot alternating thing. I think it's fancy. And I think that it is kind of a fun, cool sensation to have, but um, it's so new that there's not a whole lot of research out there that really demonstrates that you're getting more benefit than just having a confluent cold cooling at the same time. So I think that's something that will be interesting to see what happens in the literature. 
Definitely. And, and I think you brought up a really great point. You know, the concept of rice, uh, rest, ice, compress, elevate, I believe that is, is one that has come in and out of favor <laughs> over the past, you know, several decades. And, um, and I think that what you're talking about here with combining the vibrations, which increase blood flow with the cooling, which decrease blood flow, um, but obviously both have a number of other benefits um, when it comes to, to treating the pain situation is um, that you're kind of mitigating the biggest complaint against that rice uh, protocol, which obviously rest is a good thing. Um, the ice, the compression, the elevate uh, is great for kind of reducing pain, so to speak. But I think the main concern was that it decreases blood flow and, and, uh, slows down the healing process. But if you have the vibration piece added, and if you use uh, a little bit more of a targeted protocol, keeping movement in the equation as possible, um, and all of that type of stuff, actually even just broadening the spectrum even further to supplements and nutrition and sleep and all that, that seems like it's a, a more holistic approach and potentially mitigates a lot of the downsides of um, just doing straight ice packs or straight compression, for example. And I, you know, I would say that rest is even somewhat controversial. You know, how much, how much is the immobilization? It depends on the injury, how much it's, uh, it's helpful versus not, you know, one of the other benefits of magnesium, my favorite supplement is that it actually has a, um, a pro chondroitin effect. So for injuries, it can be helpful in improving the, um, the, the chondrocyte repair and activity. And, you know, a, along those lines, another fun benefit of vibration is that it enhances fibroblastic recruitment. So you may get more repair um, cells activated in the area of an injury with high frequency vibration. So uh, again, it's, it's layering. I think that that's the thing is, is, Many times researchers study one thing, so you get a lot of studies that are about a single solution. And the sophisticated approach is to layer different aspects of mind-body, meditation, supplements, um, physical solutions. And as a last resort, the pharmaceuticals, which will wear off quickly and you've got a fairly finite number of options. But there is always another physical solution that you can try in combination with something else that makes the, the opportunities for fixing the problem um, almost mathematically limitless. That's huge. And I think that's a great point to leave folks with as we conclude this. And I can already tell that if it's up to me, we're going to have another podcast discussion, Amy, because this has been huge and we've covered so much in so little time. Um, and and that, that's a great point to end on there is just kind of keeping in mind the big picture and the the further you go from natural solutions, the more justification you need. It's not to say that uh, in today's world, especially, I'm a fan of, of using technological interventions and things, but just being careful as you do. Right. Um, I do want to give one little piece of information. Um, definitely, yeah. For people that are using Vibracool and, and the plug, we have them at Vibracool.com. But what we are finding is um, in the ACL repair study and a plantar fasciitis study that it really takes 20 minutes twice a day at a minimum to remodel 
those chronic overuse injuries like plantar fasciitis or tendinopathies. And a lot of people after ACL repair, uh, we told them to use it 20 minutes twice a day, but many of them would use it for a few hours at a time. So just know that it's not a single use and you're good. You'll get a couple hours of pain relief out of it, but if it's something that needs to be remodeled and the fibroblast activity is important, then um, you kind of have to train it away. So you need to use it for 20 minutes twice a day is the minimum, um, not the minimum, but it's where we found the most benefit. There was a, a big jump when people started doing 20 minutes twice a day. That's really helpful. And that, it's a perfect segue, actually, to where can folks learn more about you, your work, your products? Where should they go to find more information? Sure. Well, I, uh, I'm i going to provide you with the generic vibration bibliography. It's got about 100 studies, primarily oriented to sports recovery, physiotherapy, and post-operative uses of vibration. And we are at paincarelabs.com. And the mechanism for both our Buzzy, which is at buzzyhelps.com, but the Buzzy needle pain relief device and the VibraCool, it's the same frequency. Um, for now, it's the same size vibration unit. It's just that the ice packs are bigger and we have a compression unit with the VibraCool. But we're working on developing a larger vibration unit. Um, it's just a matter of trying, again, to make sure that we've got the right amplitude that goes along with the frequency so that we can impact larger muscle groups and bigger, bigger sized athletes. That's great. Yeah. So paincarelabs.com and Dr. Amy Baxter. And we've got, it looks like you have a couple other links there to buzzyhelps.com and vibracool.com. And then we definitely appreciate you sharing that bibliography with us. I know the listeners love digging into research, so they'll be able to find that over in our show notes, which is as usual over at elitehrv.com slash podcast, where you can find links to Amy and all of her work there. And Amy, uh, I really appreciate you taking your time because I know that you've got a company that's growing and uh, you've been uh, at many events. You've been on Good Morning America recently. You've, you're kind of uh, sharing this knowledge across multiple channels. You know, what, what else do you have going on? Uh, I know you mentioned there's a few other events coming up or recently. So my mission is to eliminate unnecessary opioid use and pain. And so I want to talk anywhere I can to what people with chronic pain know that you can uncouple the fear from the pain and to try to let the people on the pain task force and in government know that we have to reimburse physical solutions and supplements because this bias towards pharma where once it's approved, if you can't afford magnesium supplements, you can pay three bucks for a copay and get a jar full of oxycodone. That's just backwards. So uh, I'm going with the State Department to Tbilisi, Georgia tomorrow night. Uh, I just got back from the World Summit on Innovation and Entrepreneurship in New York, talking about innovation and the approach with pain. And I'm working with a couple groups to try to take advantage of this spot in history where we realize we're, we're subsidizing the wrong things and that's leading to the opioid crisis and uh, try to address that by doing better research, making it more 
economically relevant for people to create medical devices and physical solutions, and then change it so that we can alter the payment structure and get people off of medications that are not as effective as other solutions. I love it. Digging into the root cause. That's <laughs> a, a, a cause after my own heart there. So I, I really appreciate your time again. And um, we'll be posting all of this very soon. And uh, Dr. Amy Baxter, everyone, paincarelabs.com. Thanks so much. And uh, we'll, we'll wrap up there. All right. Thank you again for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thanks, Amy. Cheers. The Elite Academy now offers in-depth online courses on multiple subjects. So if you're enjoying the content of this podcast, but you're looking for a more structured and logical progression, looking at the science and application of these subjects, check out the Elite Academy at EliteHRV.com academy.